Friday, 17th, 2017. Uh, the title of tonight's message is Throne of Grace. Throne of Grace. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 28. We're going to start in verse 10. Genesis 28 and verse 10. Amen. It says this, Jacob left Beersheba and went out for Haran and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway or a ladder resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, or there's a footnote there beside him, stood the Lord and He said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. <laughs> He's speaking to Jacob. Generations to come, we would hear the famous phrase, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. The Lord is reiterating the promise that He gave to Abraham. He's reminding him of the promise that He gave to Isaac. And now He's making it directly with Jacob. That as He goes through this, He had a dream. He laid there and, and, and fell asleep and had a dream. Let's look at verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. How many times can you say that about your life? Right? Surely the Lord was here and I just didn't get it. I couldn't perceive it. I couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't understand it. But the Lord was here. This is Jacob's experience as he wakes up from something that the Lord had, did, had done with him that was something incredibly special. Surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? We have uh, pretty well perverted the meaning of awesome. Just something that uh, the California kids say, or there's a lot of different things. He's actually afraid as he's saying this. He's saying, this is so full of awe that, that I'm, I'm a little taken back by what the Lord just showed me here. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He's, it must have been what we'd say in our day, came upon a, a portal to the heavens. He's there going, man, what is this? I, I saw something special right here in this place. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar. Everybody say pillar. pillar. He took that stone that was his pillow and made a pillar and poured oil on top of it. Well, that's an interesting thing to do, isn't it? He had a stone there. The Lord came and spoke to him through a dream and it was the exact same uh, understanding that Abraham had. It was the exact same understanding that Isaac had. Now God was sharing it directly with him. And he said, you know what, I'm going to take the stone, I'm going to set it up. And we've seen that, we've studied that in Joshua. Through the stones that were set up as pillars, through things that were supposed to be a memorial stone for us, things that can remind us of exactly where we were when God spoke to us. But he does something that's interesting, I think. He not only set it up as a pillar, but he poured oil on top of it. The idea here for pouring oil, when he basically anointed the stone with oil. The word for anointed in the Hebrew, is mashak. It's to anoint or to smear. 
The idea that you're going to let the oil run down, as it says in Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like oil that flows down upon Aaron's head, down upon his beard. It goes down. There's, it's not just a little bit of little dabble do you in this case. It's something that the Lord pours upon you and smears upon you. This is what Jacob does in this case. He offers it and he anoints and smears it upon this rock. When you look at that word and trace it throughout, you, you, you're reminded of a few things. Men in the Older Testament were reminded to oil their shields, to anoint, to smear oil upon their shields. Why? Because of the skins that were on it, it would help keep it supple. It would help the fiery darts of the enemy that would come across that there's anointing there that they were supposed to do. Isaiah 21 tells us about this. In Psalm 23, it reminds us that he's that the Lord has set before us and He's going to anoint our head with oil. He's going to smear that upon us. Our cup can run over. When you look at the priests in Exodus 28, the priests were anointed with oil. The tabernacle in Exodus 40, many things were listed there and anointed with oil. All of the um, items in the temple, in the tabernacle, had to be done and anointed with oil. Saul, as a king, was anointed with oil in 1 Samuel 10. David in 1 Samuel 16. Solomon in 1 Kings 1. And Elisha as a prophet in 1 Kings 19. This is, a, this is an interesting point, and we know this story, but I want to show you a few things. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 30. Jacob ends up calling that place Bethel, the very house of God the very place where he met with God in such a unique way. Although that that place had been called by another name. In Genesis chapter 30, let's start in verse 25. It says this, After Rachel gave birth to Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. Jacob is trying to get back where the Lord wants him to go. Give me my wives and children for whom I have served you, and I will be on my way. You know how much I've, work I've done for you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, please stay. I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. That's an interesting way to find out. He could have just looked out and realized that everything that Jacob touched was, was prosperous. He could have just realized that what he had before was not nearly what he had after Jacob put his hand to it. But he went and found another source. Another source that said, Yeah, I'm going to seek the answer some other way. He found out by divination that the Lord had blessed me because of you. He added, name your wages and I'll pay them. Jacob said to him, you know how I've worked for you and how your livestock has fared under my care. The little you had before I came has increased greatly. He didn't need divination. All he had to do was look. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have been. But now when, when may I do something for my own household? Verse 31. What shall I give you? He asked. Don't give me anything, Jacob replied. But if you will do this one thing for me, I will go on tending your flocks and watching over them. But let me go through all your flocks today and remove from them every speckled or spotted sheep, every dark colored lamb, and every spotted or speckled goat. They will be my wages. And my honesty will testify for me in the future for whenever you check on the wages you have paid me. Any goat in my possession that is not speckled or spotted or any lamb that is not dark colored will be considered stolen. Sounds like a good, pretty good plan. And you realize that you're like, at first when you look at this, you're going, Jacob came up with a pretty good solution for it. I have all the, the funny colored animals over here. 
you have all the normal ones over here, it's going to be easy to tell. As I was reading through today, I noticed something hit me that it hadn't hit me before. Look in Genesis 31. This was a good plan. But it was a plan that was instituted in the heavens. And we see that in Genesis 31 as we get to read here. Let's start in verse 10. <laughs> in breeding season, I once had a dream. I would say, I had a dream. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw the male goats mating with the flocks that were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Kind of an interesting crew, isn't it? Streaked, speckled, or spotted. As I was reading this today, it kind of hit me that these three things are a unique entity. Streaked, speckled, and spotted. It actually reminded me of David's mighty fighting men. It reminded me of those who were indebted. They were discouraged and they were distressed. It reminded me of a motley crew that got together. And Jacob saying, why don't you give me those? Give me, give me those. Why? Because the Lord had shown him in a dream that there's something special about this type of a flock. And I want you to be the shepherd of this flock. They were streaked. Remind me of being striped. By his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. They were speckled. <laughs> As I was thinking through that and I, and I looked up these words, it, was, it reminded me of being a spectacle. You ever felt like a spectacle? You get somewhere and you're like, yeah, I don't know that I'm necessarily sure that I fit in here, but it feels like it's a spectacle to me. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 4. And verse 8. We're going somewhere, so, so keep coming with me here. 1 Corinthians 4, 8. It says this. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put His apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated and we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. This is the kind of flock that Jacob is instructed to get. This is, this is the one, the, the ones that don't seem to be right as far as the world's concerned, but there's something that is entirely otherworldly about them. They're spectacle not because of their low position. They're spectacle that low position is only here when you look at it from the earthly perspective. But from the heavens, they have the most honor. You see that these speckled and streaked and spotted ones grow better than all of the others before him. They multiply better. They produce better than anything that Laban had. Let's turn to 1 Peter, since we're close. Chapter 2. First Peter, chapter 2. Let's look at verse 9. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God a peculiar people, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness 
into His wonderful light. They were streaked, they were speckled, and they were spotted. They were marred. They were blemished. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Let's start in verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. How many, how many people in the room does this apply to? Yeah, every one of us, right? At some point you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now, everybody say now. now. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Through death. We took communion tonight. This is what we were celebrating. That He's reconciled you. Through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in His sight, without blemish. He takes those of us who are blemished and marred and marked and spotted and speckled and streaked, and He does something unique in us. He takes away that shame. He presents you in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. What a great God we serve. If you continue in your faith, established firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 31. Jacob was told to get a flock that was streaked and speckled and spotted. David was told that he gathered men that were indebted. They were distressed and they were discouraged. It's almost like we, we see over and over and over again that the Lord chooses the weak and the lowly. He chooses those things that are not noble to displace those that are. Those things that are not <laughs> right by the world's eyes to actually show that the kingdom of God is here in our midst. In Genesis 31, reading back in verse 10, in breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flocks were streaked, speckled, and spotted. The angel of the Lord said to me in a dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flocks are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I can assure you, my friends, the Lord is always keeping track of what's going on in your life. There's not a point where he's forgotten, where it slipped his mind, where it slipped his vision. In verse 13, I am the God of Bethel. He's reminding him at this point in this dream that's a few chapters later, he's pointing back to that place, that rock that was anointed, that was a, a stairwell, a ladder between heaven and earth that God was able to accomplish his will upon. God is saying, I'm that God. I want to remind you of that, Jacob. I want to remind you, I'm talking about sheep, but I want to remind you that I'm that God that you got to see in that moment. That my will ascending and descending, that my messengers coming from the heavens and going back to it, it is this is the God that I'm reminding you. Where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. And we see him move forward from here. Let's turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1.
that God of Bethel, the, the house of God itself. Let's start in John chapter 1, and let's look in verse 43. Say there when you're there. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. <laughs> Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? I happen to have been uh, raised in the city. I wasn't born there in Louisiana. And I often kind of have used this phrase about that city. Really? Can anything good come from there? I, I, I ha I've had that thought in an honest way, like, really, why would any good thing come here? Nathaniel has that exact thought. Look, can anything good come from Nazareth? Are you kidding me? You know where that is, right? You know what they do there, right? He, he, he is in disbelief. Philip does an incredible job of witnessing to him. He says, what? Just come see. Come and see. Come see. Sorry, I got slipped back into Louisiana. Come see. Right? You need to come and see this. There's, there's a way that we can witness that just says, just come with me. Like I could try to explain it, but if you just come with me, you'll be able to see it for yourself. Many times we may have to go and tell, but in this case he just says, come and see. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How'd you like to have Jesus say that about you? And this is what we work towards, isn't it? that he can say this when he sees us. Here is a true believer in whom there is nothing false. Nathaniel asked, how do you know me? Man, I just walked up. What, how, how are you saying that about me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. The Lord is seeing more than just what he is in that moment. He, he understands who Nathaniel is. <laughs> Look at verse 49. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. In verse 46, he's making fun of where, uh, of the town. Can anything good come from there? And by verse 49, he's like, yes, you're the King of Israel. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it helps when you come and see. You get to decide for yourself and you're like, okay, yeah. I had a lot of reservations. I had a lot of thoughts that may be, but I actually saw. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You tried to explain it to me before and I was a little skeptical. I didn't understand quite what was going on. But now that I'm seeing, I'm like, oh yeah, this, this is exactly what, what you said that it was. Jesus said in verse 50, You believe because I told you and I saw you under the fig tree. Yeah, it didn't escape Jesus that that had just happened, right? You're making fun of me where I'm from and now I'm the king. Yeah, you did that because I told you you were sitting under a fig tree? I told you something that no one else could have seen or understood, but I knew it. That's what proved it to you? Let me tell you something. You shall see greater things than that. Come on, how many of you want to see greater things in your life? How many of you are glad that, that it, the incredible things that you have seen isn't all that God has for you? That you've got more to see. That, and as a matter of fact, look what in verse 51. Jesus then added. Uh, in the NIV it says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. That phrase in the Greek is amen and amen. He, he added something else. You're going to see greater things than that. Amen and amen. 
That's literally what Jesus says in this moment. Because when we look at it this way in the English, I know it helps you. I tell you the truth. What does it cause your mind to do? It causes your mind to leave that last phrase, to leave the last conversation a little bit and start moving forward in what's coming after. When he says amen and amen, what does it cause you to do? Realize that he is closing this statement and adding validity to it and saying, yeah, you're going to see greater things. Oh, amen and amen. You know what you're going to see? You're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The very same thing that Jacob saw. The very same experience that Jacob had. He's saying, you're going to be able to see something. The heavens are going to open and I'm going to allow you to see it. I'm going to allow you to understand that the will of God is moving from heaven and earth. It's moving back and forth. That He's sending messengers. And I want you to see this. you got to see this. When a little kid gets excited about something. Dad, come here. Can't even hardly get it out of their mouth. They're, ah! Just tugging on you, pulling on you. Come and see. Amen and amen. You shall see heaven open. I want to see heaven open up. I want to live under an open heaven where God's revelation is continually poured out. Don't you? And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's look at verse 6. The idea of the Son of Man, just as I was thinking about this, the ascending, Jacob's ladder, ascending and descending messengers from the heavens, angels that were going to and fro. He said, you're going to see this, but the ladder, the bridge, the connection is going to be on me. You're going to see that I am this bridge, I am this connection between the earth and the heavens. Look at Romans 5 and let's start in verse 6. It says this, You see, at just the right time. Everybody say, just the right time. time. I am not always the person who can say the right thing at the right time. Sometimes I figure out the best thing to say after. Like, oh man, I should have said that. Golly, I missed it. I missed that moment. I, I wanted to say it and I was trying, but like nothing came. I know nobody else is like that, but I'm just telling you how it's like for me sometimes. The The funny quip. Yeah, that's, that's, I, uh, I, I miss it. I miss it definitely more than I get it. But here, at just the right time. When something happens at just the right time, isn't that just the, the sweetest thing that you can imagine? When someone comes and you've been discouraged and they give you a word of encouragement at just the right time. <sighs> when someone comes and prays for you, And you didn't look weak on the the outside, but on the inside, you had many, many doubts at just the right time. A word aptly spoken, Proverbs said, is is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's just beautiful. It's perfectly framed. When you have something going on in music and the right thing happens at the right time, it just feels really, really good. Everything comes together in the moment when it needs to. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God, everybody say, but God, demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for each of us. Before we could do anything that showed any amount of worth, He died for us. Since we have been now justified by His blood, how much more? If you've been through an Acts class, if you've been around here long enough, you should hear a phrase, how much more? And understand the Calvay Comer teaching that, a, that the Jews would have seen that as. What you just set up was something. Now, how much more? It was a very direct style of teaching. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? If while we were still sinners, <laughs> He set up this ladder for us. If while we were far from God, while we couldn't do anything to get to Him, He made the effort and came to us. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath through Him as we continue in Him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. How much more? You hear it there again. Shall we be saved through His life? If we are reconciled through His death, how much more will be saved through His life? Oftentimes we put reconciled and saved in the same category. Sometimes we use them interchangeably. Clearly here Paul is saying that, that he's emphasizing two different things. That you've been reconciled. That you've been given an opportunity to be brought back to God because of His death. <laughs> but now you can actually be saved. You can move on into something because of the life of Christ. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Everybody say reconciliation. Man, what a beautiful word. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that. Where we've received reconciliation. Now we, be, we can become ministers of it. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're talking about how that God's messengers, His angels, are ascending and descending. His plan is ascending and descending on the very Son of Man. In Romans chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 5. If you've been through marriage counseling, marriage enrichment, marriage teaching, marriage correction with us, it's all the same thing, right? <laughs> Whatever you want to call it to make yourself feel better about it. This passage should be familiar to you. Romans chapter 8, and let's start in verse 5. Are you there? Yeah. Amen. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. How many of you know that to be true? Have you ever just gotten lost in your own crazy thoughts? You ever become fearful of something that's not even real? but it got stuck somewhere up in your head and now you're fearful about something that's not even there. The conversations and anger that you have with other people on an argument that hasn't happened. The fights that you can get in with your spouse over the terrible husband that you were in someone's dreams. I mean, not that that's ever happened in our house, but... 
The mind of the sinful man is death. The reason that we can all laugh a little bit is because we understand that there's truth in it. When we operate in our natural minds, when we are not in the mind of Christ, the only possible outcome is death and destruction. It's the only way that you're going to do this. We know this if we want to look at it by the way we make decisions as well. If you continue to make decisions of your own thoughts, the only way that that's going to work out is producing death in you. I don't understand why it doesn't work out. Yeah, maybe you ought to inquire of the Lord a little bit. Maybe you ought to work in the mind of Christ that He's given you. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Everybody just take, a, take in a deep breath. Let it out. That's what it should feel like to you. That's what it feels like to me when I read this verse. When my mind is controlled by the Spirit, it's life and it puts everything in the right order. The sinful mind is hostile to God. And don't think that it's not. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, <laughs> giving you a very true statement, but let's talk about you. You are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. How important is it for us to have the Spirit of God living in us? actively working in us, for us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him. This is what we must do. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. I love that phrase. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. It should call to us. It's, it's reminding us of the resurrection power that God has that He wants to put within inside of us, that is inside of us, that we can stand against all the forces of darkness. But if Christ is in you... I'm sorry. Verse 11, And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who lives in you. He keeps saying it. It's a little bit redundant, isn't it? The Spirit that's in you, and it lives in you. It's not an unintentional redundancy. It's intentional. Because He's trying to remind you that His Spirit is in you. That He's got that resurrection power that lives in you. That you should be able to walk in this resurrection power because it's in you. Verse 12, Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you know what happens? You live. That's where that life and peace come back in for us. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Amen. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. I have that little phrase bracketed in my Bible. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Because that's what fear does. It causes us to be slaves. God may help them, but He's not going to help me. God's helped us time after time after time, but this time He may fail us. Don't become a slave again to fear. That's not the spirit that we're talking about here. But you re received the spirit of sonship, and by Him you can cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sorry about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My brain was three sentences ahead of my mouth. Sorry. 1 Chronicles 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Take two. Amen. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Have mercy. Let's start in verse 20. It says this, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. This is the latter. This is the connection that we can see. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits. Then when He comes, those who belong to Him. Then the end will come. When He hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. In Romans, it also talks about that everything has been placed under Christ, although we don't always see it in that fashion yet. The truth is, is that everything has been subjected to Christ. But what we see is an active process of working this out in the realm that we can, that we can notice, in the earth around us. But we can trust that God has this pathway between the heavens and the earth and is riding on the Son of Man, and He has accomplished this so that if we keep our trust in Him, we will be able to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We'll be able to see it here in our midst, what he is accomplishing in the spiritual realm. Just for the fun of it, let's read verse 58. Same chapter. First Corinthians 15 and 58. It says this, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Everybody look at your neighbor. Say, stand firm. Let nothing move you. That's a pretty big order, isn't it? How you doing? You got to stand firm. What does that mean? You let nothing move you. Wow. That's a lot. How, how are we going to do that? Oh, we must need that spirit of sonship that allows us to do this. It must have to be this Son of Man, this, this Christ, this Messiah that helps us to do this. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Truth is, is he's telling us how to stand firm. We give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I wish I had better words sometimes to be able to describe what some of these verses do inside when I read them. Even as I'm preaching it to you, the best thing that I can do is say that it brings me peace to see these words. The best that I can try to do is have you inhale and exhale and feel what it's like just to drop some of that tension away from you for just a moment. Because when I read this, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Dear God, that is the cry of our hearts. If you've ever done anything for the Lord, if you've ever worked hard for the Lord, this is your cry at some point. Lord, I don't want to do this in vain. I don't want to do this for no reason. I don't want to end up faltering at the end. Lord, I want to stand firm. I want to be immovable with what you've said to us. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Just walking you through some scriptures that are very familiar. Very familiar. 
We're going to read Philippians 2 and verses 5 through 11. This first time through, I'm going to ask that you pretend like that you haven't read this before. That you don't know about chiastic structures and parts that line up with each other and that you haven't read this a hundred, five hundred, a thousand times before. I'm just going to ask that you read this with me as I'm reading it that you will follow along and just, just look at what it's actually saying about the Son of Man and how His life was a bridge, was a ladder between heaven and earth. Starting in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Where does that leave? Uh, Nowhere. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The truth is, is why I was brought to that is because I've learned being here about the chiastic structure of Philippians 2. About how the apex, the climax of this is even his death on a cross. But I thought about it in a new way today. How the will of God descended on the Son of Man and that he ascended as well. I saw the picture that was there and shown in in Jacob with Jacob's ladder. I saw the picture that Jesus Christ himself quotes in John chapter 1. And I'd never seen this passage that way until earlier. And it blessed me. The idea of him being the connection and coming down. He didn't grasp the equality. He became a slave. Obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then what happens? He's resurrected. His exalted name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God. I just saw the picture of what he quoted to us in John chapter 1. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2? Hebrews chapter 2. Let's start in verse 5. Hebrews 2 and verse 5 says this, It is not to angels that He has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. (laughs) If you can go back to the verse before there just for a second. You made him a little lower than the angels. You should have a footnote in your Bible. Gives you a comparable translation. Something that is a valid alternate translation, I guess I should say better. You made him for a, a little while 
lower than the angels. The one that was with God from the beginning descended to us, made a little lower than the angels, or at least for a little while. He crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Look at continuing verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. So in other words, everything is subject to him. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, because he was obedient, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What an incredible thought that he could taste death death for everyone so that we might not actually have to taste the fullness of what death tastes like. We were in 1 Corinthians 15. It, it says that throughout. It talks about the power of the resurrection and the resurrected body. And it goes through this and it shows us these things. Here he's saying, because of his obedience, he was raised to glory and honor so that we might not have to taste death, but that he tasted it for us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once for all by His own blood. Hebrews is such an incredible book in the Bible. These are such incredible chapters. I used to literally have difficulties not wanting to read the entire book of Hebrews every time I started. It just kind of kept going in each... Well, I'm just going to read one more section. Oh, that was great. Let me just read one more. And I find myself trying to work through all the chapters in Hebrews every time I sit down for it. One of these phrases here. (laughs) He did it once for all. Man, it just blesses me by His own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. Everybody say outwardly clean. clean. How much more? Wait a minute. There's that phrase again. How much more? What He gave you first was a truth. It was powerful. It is right. There's nothing to take away from this. If this is true... How much more? If you can be outwardly cleansed by what was going on here, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness, our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Come on, guys. And we want to have clean consciences before the Lord. Why? How can we do that? By the blood of the Lamb. This is how we do it. He has made a way. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Let's start in verse 12, please. It says this, For the Word of God is living and active. Hey, saints, just because we know scriptures, let's not lose the impact. The Word of God 
It's living and active. If it's been a while since you've got in the Word and you found it to be living and active, you need to check your heart. You need to check what's going on inside of you so that you can have this living and active Word impact you. This is what it's designed to do at all points, at all times. When we get in the Word and devote ourselves, it is supposed to be, and it is, living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. My friends, I know that you know this passage. I, I know that you do. Uh, we, we read it in our services often. We quote it. We reference it. It is, it is part of who we are as a church. Do you understand that it judges, the Word of God judges between your thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. Not only can it figure out what your words are saying, not only does it discern your actions, but it shows the thoughts and the intents of your heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We basically started with this theme tonight. But look where it goes from here. Therefore. What a great word in the English language. There's nothing that's hidden from our God. Everything is laid bare before Him. We must give an account. Therefore, since you've just been reminded of the power of the Word, that we stand before Him bare. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Folks, we have someone. We have someone on our side. We have the one whose eyes that blaze like fire. It says in Revelation 1 and verse 12. The one who looks like the Son of Man. He's standing there and he's clothed in, in garments and a golden sash and eyes that blaze like fire, feet that are like burnished bronze, hair that is white like snow. He is standing there in all power, in all authority because he has died on this earth. He has been perfectly sum submitted to the Father. And, everybody say and. And, and he is one who is the high priest who can sympathize with where we are. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. We can run to him. He is this path. He is the ladder that we can run to and go, you know what? God, I need not only the ones whose eyes that blaze like fire, but the truth is today, I need the one who can help me, who can understand where I am. He's been tempted in every way, but yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What an incredible thing here. <laughs> we, have, we have this, we saw a stone that was anointed. We saw a ladder and we see how it relates not only in the Older Testament but all the way throughout the Newer Testament that He is our High Priest. He is the one who was worthy to open the, the, the seals. He was worthy to open the scroll. He is the one that we can stand with tonight. We're going to worship tonight. This is how I wanted to close tonight. 
I wanted us to get into worship time because I want us to come boldly. I want us to come with confidence. Let us then approach the throne of grace, His throne of grace, with confidence. That every one of us here can approach His throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace. Not just the way that the world says mercy and grace, but grace that teaches us to say no. His mercy that says, yes, I was tempted, I understand that, but I have no sin, and that's why I died and tasted death so that you wouldn't have to. We're going to worship in an unhindered, kind of confident way tonight. I wanted to end on a joyous time with you so that we can understand that we have a throne of grace that we can go to. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me?